from some of the different writers, distinguished writers, starting at um, far end and coming to the center, and then just starting on this end and going to the center. And uh, Mary Barack himself will give a statement at the uh, inclusion of the statements from the different artists that we have here today. Well, my statement is very, I'm not really going to make a statement. <clears throat> I'm simply appalled and outraged. And it seems to me that the kind of unjust punishment mm -hmm. which is being meted out to Amira Baraka is an indication of the kind of jeopardy in which all literary artists stand at this moment. It seems to me that uh, McCarthyism uh, has been resurrected and is very alive and well. Next we have a statement from Brother uh, Ed Bullins. Yes, um, at this moment in our history, um, American history, black history, third world people's history, that um, our uh, survival, as it uh, of course has always been, but especially now, is in jeopardy. And this is pointing out through the persecution of Amiri Baraka, the shooting and media cover-up of uh, Joanne Little, uh, the atrocious acts that are being perpetrated in Atlanta of genocide against black children, and all the uh, List the blacklist that is circulating uh, unofficially and officially throughout America. And this is all the fabric of the same thing. Political oppression, cultural oppression, life suppression of black people, of progressive people. Uh, and, and it points to the rise of the new right, the uh, rise, the, the drift towards fascism uh, by, by the middle, by the middle wing in this country, and uh, the move on artists, intellectuals, and uh, black people, and people from the 60s who were active especially uh, to kill off all thought, all dissension, and uh, kill the spirit of uh, this movement we've been working in uh, for most of our lives. I wish I'd had uh, more time to prepare remarks. I was told of this only an hour ago, but I came over immediately. I, I felt instantly when I was told of the language, both of the district attorney and the judge in this case, that a very dangerous precedent was being set, being set for all writers in America, a misunderstanding which is which we're feeling more and more in the in the court cases in America about what a writer does and what a writer stands for. There, I think there are two quite deliberate misunderstanding, misunderstandings in this case. One, what a writer does, what a, a writer like Amiri Baraka stands for, and what he creates out of, what all writers create out of, especially writers who are, are poets, writers of fiction, and writers who are standing on the edge of, of uh, I would say the edge of truth, that moment when we can't simply talk about reporting, but we're talking about trying to look into the future, trying to prophesy, 
trying to see what lies ahead. We could throw the remarks of the judge 2,000, 3,000 years back in history, and we'd be looking at some of the villains in, in uh, history as it's come down to us. As a religious person, I've heard this case before. The prophet Jeremiah, the prophet Isaiah, standing up, trying to see what was going to appear in the future, trying to state difficult, invidious truths, and, and authorities who simply did not want to hear that kind of truth, did not want to hear that sort of possibility, did not want to hear that forecast. The, the remarks of, of the judge, the remarks of the district attorney, the understanding of what a writer does, I feel is a, an absolutely outrageous step into an area in which a district attorney and a judge has absolutely no standing, in which a district attorney and a, and a, and a judge are trying to take over the uh, position of a literary critic, perhaps. And in fact, in which really a literary critic has no standing. If writers are going to be denied the ability to state the difficult and the dangerous and then hauled into court on one charge and blamed for another, then the United States of America and its court system is in a very difficult pickle. I, I think already we've heard from some of the writers here the sense that America is moving in a dangerous direction, that, that these remarks should stand in a case of where the question is assault, a case which would we know in 99.9% of, if it hadn't happened to anybody else, it would be thrown out as a joke, is simply, it's not only outrageous, it's dangerous. And I think it's the, the uh, duty of all writers in America to stand forward and scream. Yes. The CIA has been after Amiri Baraka for quite a long time and it is very interesting that it is in 1981 when those repressive forces have convicted him of such a ridiculous charge of resisting arrest. It's interesting because this is 1981 and it seems to me that we all feel that there is a wave of contempt for black people sweeping this country and this wave of contempt goes from the highest echelons to the lowest. It includes the murder of the children in Atlanta and upstate New York and in Mississippi and in places that we haven't yet heard of. And it includes the contempt with which the press is treating this type of a press conference where the NBC cameras and CBS cameras and Channel 13 cameras and other coverage is not here to record this event. Um, and we all feel this sense of not only outrage but surprise, which is an indication that we still must feel some type of hope or some kind of innocence that we are constantly being surprised that something like this can happen, something this ridiculous can happen, something this oppressive can happen. I can only repeat what the other writers have said what we all feel is, and which has been said before, if they come for Amiri Baraka in the morning, they can come for the rest of us in the afternoon. Just before we begin to take statements from Missy, we'd like to acknowledge the presence of uh, some distinguished guests. We have with us uh, Mr. Woody King, here, uh, Ben Cowell, George Ferris. 
Wayne Davis from the British Voice, and all the rest of you, in case I have greatly missed someone. But at this time, we have a statement from Brother uh, Luis Riviere. On behalf of the uh, Black Writers Union and its affiliate associations here in New York City and elsewhere, I bid you greetings and wish to take this time to outline a passing note on our current state of repression. Current, I say, because I have yet to be familiar with a point in time since Western governments and their corresponding institutions were established in this hemisphere where repression against the people did not exist. Uh, for the moment, I'm reminded of a quote from William Shakespeare, the question, who is here so base that he would be a bondsman? It is not necessary today to elaborate upon the given factors of this particular period since they have been more than adequately documented by the various media. We know that we are in an economically turbulent period with more being spent for less. We know that the unemployment rate is rampantly strangling our capacity to keep ends in close proximity. We know that the excesses of pornographic trade have been established as a way of life in every major urban center in this country, ransacking the perspectives of our youth. We know that drug abuse is still the number one contender against both our singular and collective will. We know that the education of our young has done well in producing a future of dimmed minds becoming more ignorant, more impulsive, and therein more manipulative. And we know through everyday experience that there is no justice in the courts for anyone who cannot buy his way through high-priced litigation. And further, we most definitely know that prisons, like the World War II concentration camps, were not built to lock away neither white Anglo-Saxon Protestants nor their immediate adherents. Thus, in New York City, we have an Abby Hoffman doing less than a month on a felony conviction. Thus, a Judge Gardenstein, who states on record that he could not send to jail a decent, defenseless white youth convicted of attacking a black police officer with a dog of all things. And thus we have Klansmen in South Carolina exonerated from killing demonstrators and in Alabama from lynching a black man in 1981. And finally, we have Amiri Baraka facing a three-month jail term for two unforgivable crimes. One, resisting arrest by ramming his jaw against the fists of four <laughs> police officers and two, for being a vociferous personality, both of which have been clearly documented in the trial transcripts. At a time when the citizens of Georgia, Tennessee, Florida, California, New York State, and city, South Carolina, Colorado, etc., are bearing and witnessing and participating in the wanton and ritual murders of black men and children by hired guns, by right-wing fanatics, by secret societies, by psychopaths, and by police officers, at a time when the process of disseminating information and literature is clearly becoming more conglomerized, and the right Reverend Jerry Falwell announces an open attack on the library shelves, salvaging only those books that hold to his view of God and the world, at a time when, in fact, books by white and black progressive writers 
are being banned right outside New York City, the so-called literary mecca of the Western Hemisphere, we are witnessing, through the example of Amiri Baraka, a concretized attack on the writer, the poet, the people's conscience, the visionary, the cultural worker artist, the singularly important element of societies throughout the histories of all of us, the griot, shaman, priest, prophet, poet is being persecuted, and Amiri Baraka, probably the most renowned African-American poet alive today, is herein used as the example for the rest of us. Aside from the Red Guard COINTELPRO syndrome of setting up one political persuasion against the other, there is this naming names bill which will intimidate any and every listener into testifying against an honest exchange of ideas. And it is this intimidation, this form of manipulating a person's basic fears against his right to know and assess the nature of his conditions that tried and convicted Amiri Baraka. His refusal to be intimidated is the basis for the verdict and tomorrow's execution of sentence. And where this exists, and where this exists, history shows that libraries are subject to be burned, witch, witch hunts are instituted, and the people face more and more their oppressive state, all of which tends to reduce the argument against George Jackson to an academic exercise as to whether or not the state that we live in is either fascistic or fascist. And I am also reminded of a contemporary poet's words, Zizwe Ngafwa, and I quote, beware the time the poet draws aim down the barrel of a gun, unquote. Thank you. I just want to, uh, I don't have a statement either. I just want to say that I'm here in support of Mary as a friend, for a 20 year friend, and as a, as a, uh, a man who has made, I think, uh, probably the greatest contribution to Afro-American literature. And so, at, at this time, I want to read Amina Baraka's statement. And um, I've noticed one thing about this case, and talking to people, a lot of people, have said, well, it was a family argument, and Amina has repeatedly said that he was not hitting her, and this was not a domestic, it was an argument, but was not hitting her. And this is a statement uh, from Amina. She said, I would like to thank all the people at the press conference, as well as the people who have continuously supported our family through this ordeal that is not over yet. It is important for me that we, the people on the outside, take great care to make a unified stand to show our concern about Amity's health and safety if he has to go to jail tomorrow. It is clear he is a political prisoner and is being sentenced to jail because of his politics since he is guilty of nothing other than using his skill as a writer to struggle against the injustice of this system. Again, I would like to say that I'm not only in support of Amity because he is my husband, but more important for me, I support his politics and his undying love for the self-determination of Afro-American people and the struggle for the liberation of the entire American working class and freedom of all oppressed nations and people around the world.
As a writer who has benefited greatly from Amiri Baraka's considerable contributions to our cultural and political life, I share the outrage of the other writers here that he was convicted of resisting arrest and given a three-month sentence despite conflicting accounts of what actually took place. One must ask what purpose Amiri Baraka's incarceration would serve. The answer given by the district attorney in Baraka's case was that he has used his writing to propagate against authority. That is true. He has been most eloquent in his opposition to the present political order, which has recently begun to institute even more fiercely policies that would penalize those groups in the society that have the least. Amir Baraka is part of a long tradition of black people and other embattled groups in this country who have worked for a more just and equitable society. His three-month sentence is a clear statement that this American tradition is only championed when it does not threaten entrenched political and economic power. We should not lose sight of the implications that Amir Baraka's case has not only for writers, but for anyone else who takes issue with the way this nation behaves toward the disenfranchised within its own population and the exploited majority of the world's people. It is an attack against all of us. Before we get a statement from uh, Mr. Mayor Rock, we'd like to also acknowledge the presence of Mr. Doug Harris from Reactive Ms. Jessica Hagedorn from the National Organization of Federal Writers, Mr. Jeff Ripps, and representatives from the Field Direct Media here at the Pan American Senate. And we have a statement from uh, Mr. Mary Rock. The um, first uh, uh, reason my wife is not here is that uh, my oldest son is graduating from elementary school today, which is why I'm dressed up. If, those, if you thought I was dressed up for this press conference, <laughs> you're mistaken. I got to do some serious stuff after this. <laughs> so that's what that was about. Also, um, there's a list of, of many writers who uh, support this. Um, Tony Morrison. Um, Jack Hirschman, Lawrence Ferlinghetti, Michael McClure, Allen Ginsberg. Uh, one of them was just walking through the door. I couldn't think John Killens. Uh, June Jordan, Nat Hintoff, uh, Rob Penny, Gary Snyder, Charles Fuller, Phil Royster, Robert Creeley, Sandra Esteves, Steve Cannon, Jane Cortez, Alice Notley, Ted Bergen, Bernadette Mayer, Ron Padgett, Hannah, Hannah Wiener, Bob Holman, Rudy Burkhardt, Piero Hellitzer, Peter Olofsky, David Gascoigne, Alan Kornblum, Diane DePrima, Stan Brackage, Nathan Hurd, Maya Angelou, Pedro Pietri, other artists, Ozzie Davis, Max Roach, Marvin Camillo, Joe Overstreet, and some activists like Judge Bruce Wright, Julian Bond, Herbert Daughtry. These are some of the people whose names have been appended to our, uh, our various documents. Norman Mailer has sent a statement uh, that's very short, <laughs> said he is one of our most talented writers. Does this entitle him to a special regard from justice? I'm inclined to think it does. I'm not interested in a special regard for justice. I'm interested in any justice at this point. Uh, but I want to uh, read a, a general statement. Um, first, um, there are eight general points. 
I want to make. First of all, the state's case has been based from the beginning on fraud, and I guess eventually it will come out. Uh, all the witnesses that they have testifying against me say the thing happened at Fifth Avenue and Eighth Street, but it happened Fifth Avenue East of University Place in front of a movie theater. And they've testified to that repeatedly. All the witnesses have testified to that, and that's a fraud, and it can be proven. Uh, the second thing is that prosecutors slanders and lies throughout the trial. The photos that we had showing our uh, getting beaten were subpoenaed by the court and then these, uh, by the district attorney, and then these photos uh, disappeared. Uh, I have a history of harassment by the FBI, the COINTELPRO program. I have a box of over 2,000 pages of COINTELPRO surveillance beginning in 1957. Supposedly it stopped in 1975. If you believe that, I guess you believe in the Easter Bunny and the Good Tooth Fairy. Uh, to give you an example of that, I read a poem in the fall of 1980 in front of the Schomburg for the opening of the Schomburg. Uh, Mayor Koch sent uh, uh, one of his um, associates and two bodyguards to the Schomburg to uh, transcribe the poem, uh, if you can get to that. Uh, two police, the two policemen who were named in the grand jury hearings uh, and this is a case that had five days of grand jury hearings, a resisting arrest case that had five days of grand jury hearings and two years of trial, uh, 20 police officers in the court, and a metal detector for a resisting arrest uh, charge. Uh, the, the grand jury threw out all the charges, uh, and those charges were, were pretty extensive. I was accused of assault and battery on my wife, assault and battery on the police, possession of a dangerous weapon, which of course was the, the Negro knife, uh, interference with police processes, uh, and resisting arrest. The grand jury met five days and threw out all the charges. The district attorney's office then was permitted to charge resisting arrest. The only thing the grand jury did was indict two police officers for harassment, and this case has never come to uh, court because they're waiting until I get locked up before they even bring that. But to show you the continued harassment, these two police officers are now suing me. And people should understand that uh, there's a new twist, that if you bring charges against police officers and those charges are thrown out, you know, you only can go to the uh, police review board. If those charges are thrown out, then the police have the right to sue you, which of course will make people, uh, you know, very uh, cautious about bringing any charges. Um, so the grand jury threw out all the charges, and the only charge is resisting arrest. But then when you ask, well, what is the charge he was arrested for? There is no charge he was arrested for, which is like uh, catch-22 and more harassment. In terms of the attack on the First Amendment and rights in general, the prosecutor, Detata, and Judge Zarkin both said that I had to be jailed essentially for exercising my First Amendment rights, and also to make an example uh, of me, and I quote now from the transcript. Uh, it says here, and this of course, the probation department recommended probation. The probation department recommended no jail sentence, probation. Uh, but this is what the, uh, the district attorney said. Quote, the <coughs> defendant falsely accused the police officers of beating him and called news conferences and made speeches and had leaflets passed out in the corridors. That's unquote. That's from page 16, 17 of the transcript. The DA also said that I should be incarcerated because, quote, the only way to impress upon the defendant and to the community, and we say, what community are we talking about? 
that the court will not tolerate crimes to go unpunished, uh, depends on what crimes they're talking about, make clear to the defendant and to the community that the courts are serious. So these, these, these were the, the reasons, because I had uh, passed out leaflets, because I had gotten on television, because I had written articles saying that, uh, you know, that they were guilty of police brutality. After sentencing, you know, 90 days, they would not even permit my attorneys to appeal, but sent me straight to prison on an upcoming New Year's holiday, knowing it would be a long weekend before I got out. But also, in the opinion or non-opinion that Judge Freed delivered last week, and Judge Freed's opinion was that he could not give an opinion. That was his opinion. Uh, he said that the reason he could not vacate sentence is that I had already started serving the sentence. So in other words, they put you in jail without giving you a chance to uh, appeal it and then say the reason that they're keeping you in jail is because uh, you had already started uh, serving the sentence. So it's pretty strange. Another thing is that, of course, I am a husband and father, uh, a family of seven to support, uh, a known writer if not well-known, at least known by some folks, and uh, an assistant professor at Stony Brook, uh, State University of New York. I am not going to uh, have surgery performed on my nose and go into hiding. Uh, I'm not going anywhere. And uh, any middle-class white man in a similar social position would have had this case thrown out two years ago. But here's a resisting arrest case on trial for two years. So it raises the question, why the frantic urge to jail me, except for continuing political repression, so that my life and my family's life is disrupted, and so perhaps I might lose my job, maybe my life. But it brings back a, a continuing pattern of harassment for political activists, uh, especially those who are in the arts. And if you go back to the 50s, you know that this is the same kind of harassment that sent Richard Wright into exile that condemned Paul Robeson to virtual house arrest and banishment from concert stages and films, uh, that humiliated Langston Hughes into testifying before the House Un-American Activities Committee and indicted W.B. Du Bois as an agent of a foreign power. All that happened in the McCarthy 50s. These are the greatest names in African-American literature. These are the greatest names in African-American literature. You say Du Bois, Richard Wright, uh, Langston Hughes, and then they had Paul Robeson. You've named a, a group that really cannot be top, yet all of those people were attacked by the United States government. I mean, to indict W.B. Du Bois as an agent of a foreign power because of his ideas, as Du Bois said, two things the man said they hate about me. One is my nationality, and the other is my opinions. And I think that that's the problem that I have. And I think that. Uh, we have to see this as another case of a double standard, of the lack of democracy for black people in the press nationality, the limited uh, kind of democracy for members of the working class, even white uh, uh, people. And there are many, many cases that demonstrate the double standard of justice between white and black or between white and the rest of the oppressed nationalities. For instance, the Abby Hoffman case people mentioned. You know, uh, maybe I've been better off if I'd been selling cocaine. I probably would only get 45 days. Uh, <laughs> The Ross case with the dog put on the man and they said, you know, he might get raped in prison, uh, you know, so he can't be locked up. Matt Troy, who uh, grand larceny for robbing his own, uh, you know, clients, you know, he robbed $20,000 from his clients. He served, uh, last time I was in there, he was serving his time 
which he came in Saturday afternoon. He went to the dispensary, he turned on the TV and watched all the games, uh, watched boxing on Sunday, and after boxing was over, he went home. And he did his time like that, which is not bad if you like sports. Uh, and finally, even the people who were accused of robbing the parking meters, who were all given reduced sentences and weekend sentences because they had, they had only stolen $1 million in coins. And then there is the case of the white doctor in the Bronx who shot a Puerto Rican youth who parked in his parking space and who was given a suspended sentence and who had to come into the hospital and perform social services. So we can see that it's not a question of getting any kind of justice, you know, or democracy. And I think finally this attack on my family and I must be seen as part of an entire motion by the society to the right to a still more repressive and more narrow and reactionary society. And I think Ronald Reagan's election has consolidated and made legal the right-wing trend that has been obvious in this country since Richard Nixon. And we mentioned Buffalo, uh, people with their hearts torn out. The Klan and Nazi murder people on, on television in Greensboro. You can assassinate people on television and get away with it in the present climate. The lynching of the brother in Mobile and the murderer is now allowed to walk away. They indicted the person who squealed on him. He's now facing uh, charges. The continuing massacre of black children and now adults in Atlanta, and now they say there have been 38 black women who were killed in Atlanta, unsolved murders in the last two years. And you add to that $39 billion in budget cuts aimed at working people and oppressed nationalities. And Reagan's fiscal maniac, David Stockman, who announces that no one is entitled to anything, which takes us back before the kings. <laughs> and then he goes right to work trying to get rid of social security system, which I think brought out a, little, a lot of old conservatives out of the closet when he attacked the social security. And then you get a picture of a society not only moving to the right, but you also see that Reagan and company and the sector, the bourgeoisie they represent, will stop at nothing to preserve white racist monopoly capitalism, that is even fascism. And for those of you who think that they will stop short of fascism, that it is a no-no, you know, that that is what they used to call uh, fins, we can't go to fascism, uh, you better think again, because they will do anything. And for African Americans, our struggle remains obvious. There's never been either democracy or justice for us in this country. And black people must have political and economic power to develop our lives. The black nation must have self-determination, the right to decide what our relationship will be with the U.S., even a socialist U.S., and I say a socialist U.S. because ultimately I think the great majority of Americans are faced with the dilemma of either watching this country become fascist or fighting for socialism. That might come to a shock to many people, but, you know, like they say when, in that ad where somebody slaps you in your face, I think you might need that. <laughs> um, finally, tomorrow uh, there has been, a, there's been a, a hit list of artists. Uh, some people have leaked a, a hit list of various artists who the government is conspiring and has been making these machinations against. And, and this has been leaked to me, and it's been leaked to several folks. And tomorrow, when I go to court, since I know all the media is going to be there, uh, because they're going to come out, you know, to, uh, as the Time magazine said in 1968 when I was supposed to go to prison, Leroy, get curtains for Leroy. I know they'll be out. <laughs> Tomorrow, and so tomorrow, I want to release this 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 list of artists who have been singled out uh, by the government. This list has been circulated among artists now for the last month, and there's a list of well-known 
uh, you know, American artists who have been singled out uh, to get wiped out. And finally, tomorrow at 9 o'clock, I'm supposed to appear before Judge uh, Friedman, Part 1, Room 535, to surrender uh, to go to Rikers Island. And finally, I think that my jailing is, is, is supposed to be an attempt to intimidate black people and intimidate you know, progressive people. But that, that won't work. There's nobody intimidated by that. The only thing that can possibly do is make people angry enough to begin to do something on the real side to change the society. Thank you very much. Well, I'm here to express my solidarity with my brother and fellow writer. Mary Baraka. I'm here also because I looked at some statistics the other day and saw that 70% of the people killed by, by the New York finest in New York City are black people. And I did a study which the New York Times commissioned me to do and then would not print about the, the uh, prison system in New York City. Well, just about 90% of the people are black, uh, Puerto Rican, and 90% and of the policemen are white. And as long as this situation exists, I feel in danger. I think all black people are in danger. I'm also here in defense of the First Amendment of the Constitution of the United States, which guarantees us the right freedom of speech and press. And I, I believe that America is being persecuted because of what he likes and what he thinks. And I believe it's time for, for black people to come together. And when one of us are attacked, we should learn from the lessons uh, that we did not learn when Paul Robeson and the boys were attacked. Some of us ran away from them. And Malcolm. That when our leaders are attacked, our spokesmen are attacked, we must gather around them. We must pick our own leadership and not let the, the establishment, this racist establishment, uh, pick our leadership for us. When men or women speak out in our behalf, we must back them. That's why I'm here. I'd like to thank all of the distinguished uh, writers and Authors, culture workers that uh, participate on the panel. Uh, at this point, we'd like to get some uh, questions from uh, media or different people here today uh, to hear uh, himself or any of the Well, yeah, according to this, um, you know, this document, which, like I said, I'll be glad to circulate tomorrow at 9 o'clock before they take me away, um, there's a letter from some people who work for a government agency who sent it to uh, a very well-known producer in this town, and it lays out some of the attempt to actually uh, disrupt the progressive artists discredit them, prevent their work from being shown, harass their daily life, cause feuds with other artists, the press, sponsors, you know, uh, and they use, they stipulate um, phone calls in the night, crank calls, feud producing letters, landlord harassment, uh, 
defamation of character by trying to establish a bad reputation, uh, IRS scrutiny, blocked means of survival, constant surveillance, direct harassment, family harassment, to actual physical assault and even quote unquote disappearance. And most of the people on this list have been marked for harassment and disruption. There's some with asterisks by their name uh, that have been marked for uh, you know actual elimination. So. Is it one particular group of people or type of people? No, like no, 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 no. It's like this this country. It's multinational. <laughs> you know, multinational progressives, multinational hit lists. You know, they're blacks and browns and whites and you know uh, everybody. And you probably know most of the names, most of the people who you've seen, uh, you know, performing at rallies. You know, whose works suddenly disappeared once it was known that they were progressive, you know, and so forth. Those kind of folks. You know, all the names are well known to people. Where are you going to be tomorrow at 9? What's the address of that? Uh, uh, 100 Center Street, Part 1. That's, uh, was it Room 535? It was last time. They have a habit of changing it around, you know, so it's Part 1. Part one is the is the place where I have to show up. That's the the court. It's called part one. But it's but it's room five thirty five. It was last week. I don't know. It might switch it up. But you have to look for part one on the directory. You know, Judge Friedman. But that's spelled F R I E D, which might be fried man. You know, after tomorrow. I hate to ask this question, but I. When I, went, when I suggested that I want to do this story, immediately I got a very strange comment from, you know, where I worked, someone made some little, you know, said, oh, you know, what do you think about white beating that whole number, right? So obviously the press and the community has had a very successful attempt to give a different view about your case, right? Yeah, sure. Could you talk to that and what, mm -hmm. how that was used and, you know? Yeah. Well, see, that was the only, uh, in terms of the way the media works, that was the only real publicity we got on this case. The case has been going two years, but the only real publicity we got on the case was a police report the first night that said I had been locked up, and it was on television and everything, said I had been locked up for beating my wife. Now the cops testified that I beat her repeatedly in the face, you know. Uh, now if I had hit her one time, you know, I mean I don't sound like the strongest man in the world, but you hit somebody in the face once, you know, with your fist, the face is going to swell up. Now, if you hit them repeatedly in their face, there won't be anything there. And certainly she was on television two minutes after the thing happened. You know, there were never any marks on her. So it was, I mean, the whole, now we obviously were arguing. Yeah, we were definitely arguing. We were double parked out in front of uh, the art theater. And uh, I had my back turned to, the, the door was open. And I had my back, she was sitting in the car. We were arguing. And uh, there was somebody put his hand on my, the cop put his hand on my jacket, back of my jacket, and pulled me out of the car backwards. So, um, so that was the only publicity you got. And that's the that only just publicity. Sort of hung around exactly. And, and, and that was, and that actually was secondary because even if we were arguing, that doesn't. What does that mean? I mean, even if we were sitting in a car arguing, even if I was double parked, what does it mean? It doesn't mean you come and beat somebody up. I mean, you know, I mean, I can have been doing any number of things, but it doesn't mean you drag them out of the car. You see, and and, and but the point was, once they discovered that it was somebody, it wasn't just the normal black man and woman who they could do that to and get away with it. 
But once they discovered it was somebody who was actually going to be able to raise a lot of noise about it, then they huddled and made, you know, they, they came up with all these things. They went into a huddle right before my eyes, and they came up with all these things, you know. And the, and the photograph showed that clearly, which is why we raised, again, nobody raised that. Uh, we had all these photographs. You know, coincidentally, a guy was walking down the street and took photographs of the whole thing in sequence. You know, you can see the whole business. You know, the village, there's always people walking around with cameras. This is a professional photographer. But we made the mistake, the lawyer made the mistake of talking about the photos over the phone. Now, I saw them in a bar, and we chose the ones we wanted. The lawyer talked about the photos over the phone because the guy wanted to get more money for the photos. He got greedy. He talked about it over the phone. The DA subpoenaed the photos the next day. They were in their possession, and the photos disappeared except for ones that were generally uh, didn't establish anything except that the police and we were out there. You know. So, I mean, that's part of it. You know, that's part of it. I mean, I could go on and on about that. But essentially, what did they want to establish? Very much like it says in here, they wanted to character assassinate me first. And that's true in all of the harassment, the character assassination. Now, I do not feel, um, I don't feel bad about having had an argument with my wife. I mean, I know very few people in the world who can say, and then they're probably not living with them, that they have been married to somebody and they don't have arguments with them. That would be kind of peculiar. You know, we were definitely arguing, you know, and it was a very serious issue. You know, why did she want to pay all that money for this boy's shoes? But, <laughs> but uh, it definitely wasn't worth uh, beating her up about. You know, I would have got over that in a couple of minutes. Five. Yeah, there were four with us that, that, that day. The one was in the Little League. There were four with us, and they left them in the street. They arrested my wife. They arrested me. And they left the children in the middle of uh, 8th Street, uh, standing in front of the car. And then she pleaded with them when we got to the precinct to please go back and get the children. They went back about 20 minutes later. And, uh, and which is interesting, because one of our witnesses testified that he took the children out of the street, put them in a restaurant doorway next to a movie house. Now, there's no movie house on the corner of Fifth Avenue. You know, there's no, there's no movie house at all. The only movie house going that way is, you know, Eastern University Place. Didn't you just say seven children? No, Excuse seven. me? Family of seven. Oh. My wife and I. It's five children. Right. Yeah, uh, do you have a survival plan? <laughs> you know, you're going to Rikers Island, right? you have a survival plan. You mean inside Rikers Island? Yes, yes. Well, part of my survival plan involves all of you, because I think that the only way I would survive is constant uh, bombardment of letters and calls, uh, you know, people demanding to know what's happening, you know, what, what am I, you know, where am I, you know, uh, what's going on. I think that's the main survival. And that's why you have the uh, list of the numbers, uh, you have a list of the warden's numbers. Exactly. Right, because we found that that does help. When there is um, a lot of external concern, you know, when people keep calling the wardens and the various people, the Department of Corrections, saying they want to know what's going on, they heard that this person is in danger, 
You know, they don't want to see another George Jackson thing go down. You know what I mean? Uh, they don't want me to have be trying to hide a weapon in my afro, you know, like George Jackson. You know. Uh, excuse me? So that, I think that's the most important thing is, is concern, people's concern, that people write letters and ask questions and make calls. That's, that's the vibe. Are you worried about uh, things happening to you while you're there? Well, I think there's, you know, a reason for concern. You know, I mean, I'm not going to do anything strange. I mean, I'm just, you know, but uh, I think there's a reason for concern. That's why I'm saying the most important thing is to uh, deal with, um, you know, people calling from, from outside. I'm sure there are, you know, uh, a lot of folks inside who, you know, we will definitely be have uh, find a close correlation with our ideas. You know, I don't. Uh, I was planning on setting up teaching uh, Afro-American studies in uh, <laughs> inside the prison, maybe a course on uh, capitalism and its decay or something like that. I was thinking. <laughs> trying to teach some courses while I was in there, you know. But I think that the, you know, the main survival is, is, is people's concern, people calling, you know, people going on record that they know that it's possible for something to happen, you know. I mean, they can pay some junkie or somebody to do something to you, you know what I mean, or, uh, or set you up and put you in solitary or something, you know, because when I went in the, the first time, the first time the, the, the people asked me, said, well, look, we have a private room for you. I said, I don't want a private room. I don't want to be in a private room. So we have a job for you working in the warden's office. I don't want to work in the warden's office. <laughs> because the private room, if you're by yourself, you might get so full of despair, you might hang yourself. You know? Sometime when you're alone like that, you start to feel so bad, you just kill yourself with your own socks or something. I don't want to actually do that. <laughs> and I don't want to work for the warden's office because then they, they slander you. You know, they say, well, he's in there doing so and so. You know, so. Now, I want to be in the population, but I don't want some crazed junkie suddenly to feel that I'm the reason that he's there, you know, and start stabbing me or something like that. Because so that can happen too. Well, I think it's a, a combination of, of, of right-wing sentiments and careerism. You know, uh, careerism because those people want to build a ladder to success over your body, and this would be a good one for her to nail down. And uh, two, because uh, I think to be in that kind of business, you have to have some kind of right-wing concerns. I mean, they were furious. I mean, you know, they were furious because I got on television and accused them of police brutality. But the grand jury thought there was enough reason to accuse him of police brutality too. You know, so um, I think it's just generally the kind of right-wing sentiment that they represent, and the fact of some careerist. Uh, the police, you know. Uh, which I guess is like asking Jack the Ripper, do his knives have blood on him? You know what I mean? Uh, it doesn't really come out like that. So um, now, as I said before, if you institute any kind of proceeding against them, then they can sue you. So that's supposed to then squash all 
any kind of, uh, you know, uh, proceedings against the police. So they're suing me. They were suing me in Staten Island, you know, which I guess is the most reactionary part of New York. But we moved to get the venue changed, so now it's been moved to Manhattan. So it's a little better. State office building. State office building on June 27, 11 a.m. And that's on 125th Street and Clayton Power Boulevard. So we would certainly like to thank all of the members of the press that came today. I'd like to thank all of the representatives from the various writers organizations, different uh, authors and writers, and all of the concerned and interested people that uh, came out today. Yeah. I just want to see the background on <laughs> it.